My name's Toby Haydock, which is just the beginning of my problems, but welcome to Who's Round. Um, well, I'm in a beautiful house, beautifully designed. This should give you a clue. I've only got about a dozen stories left to do, and one of them is The Talons of Wang Chiang. I'm good friends with Louise Jameson. I could have phoned her, but no, I thought I would aim high uh, to somebody who has made a vast and very impressive contribution to Doctor Who and is still working today. And he foolishly said yes and has picked me up and taken me into his house. So I'm going to ask him who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Uh, I'm Roger Murray Leach. Um... I designed about 30-odd episodes of Doctor Who when Tom Baker was the Doctor, uh, from his first episode on. Well, the only prescription I have here is to get an anecdote from the talents of Wang Chiang, and then your careers are oyster. So it was your, we'll, we'll start at the end. It was your last one. It was Philip Hinchcliffe's last one. One gets the impressive impression he knew it was his last one so he could do what he liked because nobody could sack him. It's, a great, it's an impressive production, Talents. Are you fond of it? I am fond of it, and particularly because, uh, in fact, the original script, um, when it came in, they weren't all that happy with. And Bob Holmes, I think, I mean, this is all from memory, so I may be totally wrong, but Bob Holmes basically decided that he would rewrite it, uh, and it obviously pays obeisance to um, all sorts of earlier movies of the genre. Um, and so the, the, we knew it was going to be set in a theatre. We knew we were probably going... To, uh, the, some of it was going to be set in the sewers. So that was a, a studio design. The film part of it um, was, was going to be set in a theatre. And we found a, th- a theatre, a Victorian theatre, up in Nottingham, Northampton, Northampton. So I went up to Recce around Southampton, but we didn't have all the locations then because we didn't have the entire script. And, of course, there were no mobile phones. So um, the occasional phone call would take place. We've got a... From the hotel we were staying, we've got... Right, we've got a bit more of the script. Can you you find a so-and-so? Well, no, but I have found um, a a Victorian operating theatre. Oh, that would be good. Okay. Right, we'll, we'll put that scene in there. Could you see if you can find a sensor? So we were literally um, making it up as we went along. And the locations were were sort of found to order by the day, which was quite interesting. Uh, and that's how that started. I started out. And as a designer on science, a science fiction show like Doctor Who, which of course can go backwards and forwards... Um, forwards, you've got a blank canvas, and you have to make the future in 1970s money. Backwards is slightly more prescriptive in the sense that you have to get it right, and you have certain um, elements that you know people will write in and complain, or you just have to be historically fastidious. So, which which do you prefer, uh, and which has the greater pitfalls? Would you say? Um, I actually love both. The thing that I do have a beef um, and about period stuff particularly in the present day because so people learn so much now off the screen particularly historical elements and 
so if you're a designer, if you're presenting what is supposedly true history or true period, you have your duty bound to try and get it right. And unfortunately, that doesn't happen so much. And particularly now we're getting programs like Merlin, which kind of really break the bounds of, of reality. People are less aware of the fact that they have that duty, I think. And you would so often, you will work with a director and say, well, well, that's okay, we'll get away with that. Actually, we shouldn't be getting away with it. We should be trying to be as accurate as possible. Even in something like Doctor Who, um, if you're going to put it in period, why not try and get it right in the first place? So that can be fascinating too. And trying to combine the modern and get people to react to something from the future in the past. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. And one of the things about talons is 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 the sort of uniformity of the design. You have, I mean, it's interesting. We talk about design departments with Deadly Assassin. You had James Atchison with Talons Wayne Chang. You had John Bloomfield. I mean, we're talking about costume designers of, of you know of great skill and repute working on a children's television show at tea time. So how how closely would you have collaborated with designers like that? And was it very fertile? That uh, collaboration? We we did try to to work together. Um, in fact, Jim, uh, we persuaded the powers that be to let Jim and I share an office uh, because we, both of us had said, this is crazy, you know, we're trying to create a world, a new world, but what happens is you've got a costume designer up in one room at one end of the building and the art department at the other end of the building and you only kind of meet in the studio and this is madness and we should try and work much more closely together. So we persuaded them to do that. Unfortunately, Jim, within a few weeks, became rather unwell. So th that all fell apart because it was a bit of a... The B we, we, it had taken a lot of persuading to, for the BBC departments to allow that to happen. Um, and, that, so that and I think Betty, uh, Betty Ringel, I think, took over uh, for the costumes. It was Joan Ellicott. For Joan Ellicott, uh, yeah. all right. Um, but yes, I mean, you do talk. If you're not, if you if you're not very careful, and you do see it at times, you'll see someone walk into a set in a costume, and they almost disappear against the wallpaper, <laughs> because the the art department and the costume department haven't spoken to each other, and haven't said, well, actually, this is what I'm going to put on the walls, or this is what I'm going to make her coat of. So that it is very important. And when you um, when you joined Doctor Who, uh, well, it's interesting. You, I mean, your whole of your Doctor Who career is is, is uh, spans Philip Pinchcliffe as, as producer. You only work with one Doctor Who producer, yep. so um, who's responsible for probably some of the, the the most uniformly admired Doctor Who stories, and certainly most admired era of the show. So, what what are your memories of Philip, and what to what do you attribute that success of his? Um, well, I think it was actually. A a huge combination. It was Tom was beginning, um, and the the very first thing we did was oh God, I can't remember what the episode was called. The Ark in Space. No, uh, no, the first oh, one the we Sontaran experiment. Sontaran experiment, before, which yeah. was shot, and so Tom was obviously fairly nervous on that. We Barry Letts was. That was his last one, and it was the handover one. Yeah. Tom broke his collarbone, as you probably know, halfway through. We were on top of Dartmoor when it happened, and I the set that I'd put there, 
was built and I was kind of sitting there twiddling my thumbs. Somebody said, well, you better, you know, can you go in with him to the hospital? So I spent, I, I followed him into Torbay Hospital and um, we then spent four or five hours together sitting there waiting for him to be strapped up and t talked about everything and anything and his nervous, because he obviously thought, well, you know, hell, you know, I'm just starting. This is going to be the end of my career as Doctor Who as well. Um, and, and we got on, we got on really well. Uh, and so everybody got on well, which was, which was, which was really nice. It was, it was Bob Holmes. It was Philip Hinchcliffe. It was Philip's determination that maybe the programme should, needed to be less for, less made with, as a children's programme but more a programme that was suitable for children. And I think that really worked. There were some interesting s stories and he was very uh, free. He, you know, he was very open to ideas. So, f for example, when we did uh, The Planet of Evil and he said, well, you know, where are we going to film this, this planet? And, you know, and I said, well, look, you know, can we build it? And I, uh, I, I, at the time we were seeing all the, the what was what's the thing with John Luke Picard and oh Star, Star Trek, and you know you'd see planets which were kind of flat white tablecloths with p pyramids on them, which actually meant nothing. And I said, look, you know, let's build something that actually can really gets to people, makes them they understand. And he got really enthused, and he juggled money around, and he so that we could actually film that on the stages and we built this big set and it was all done on a shoestring even so but he was very open to ideas and very adventurous in that way and tom put, because it was his first he was his first producer uh he really put his body and soul into it huge enthusiasm and really kind of took everybody with him with that enthusiasm including his companions and everybody else and we all i think i like to think we all admired what each other were doing too so that there was there was a lot of respect on on that too so it was all and it was great fun well sometimes experiments an interesting one because you're designing the sets but your set is actually entirely on location so because you'd had the arc in space, you did subsequent, although it's broadcast before, was all the studio work of the equivalent yeah. Sparta, and Sontaran Experiment was all the location work. So, I mean, does that make it a lighter workload? Do you, I mean, how, how do you, how do you sort of think about building sets on what is a sort of established terrain? Well, basically, what, as far as I can remember, what happened was that the, um, we shot the Santarian experiment, I think, in about two weeks. Uh, whereas the Ark in Space was quite a, a big build for Doctor Who then, as opposed to the squillions they throw at it now. And so that was going to take time. So what they decided to do was slot the Santarian experiment in first, get Tom and everybody used to each other, get Philip used to it, to working with all the, the crew who were quite well established 
Uh, and I, I would just go down, we'd build our little, we, there were tiny sets there. Uh, we, we, we had very little to do, but we were going backwards and forwards to London to supervise and get the, the sets for the Ark in Space built and planned because there was never enough time or there never was enough time to, for the preparation. So that's basically how it worked and that's why it was done in that way. Well, let's take us to how you got there then. So what was your, your, your background and, and, uh, and what, brought, what led you to being designing at the BBC? I trained uh, initially as an architect uh, and decided I did, this is not something I wanted to do. And um, the, uh, mostly because you're working with builders and clients and, th that's, and you're kind of stuck in the middle. Um, but it was a very good grounding for what, for what, but I'd always loved the theatre and television and film. And uh, I went to Australia, practiced out there for, for you know, uh, worked out there in an architectural practice and decided really I wanted to give it up. And uh, I, I had friends at the BBC and prior to going to Australia, um, I, I used to go and watch the recording of that was the week that was sometimes and I knew some of the people there. And when I came back, one of my friends said, look, I think they're going to be taking on holiday relief designers. You know, were you interested? So I went to see Dick Levin, who was then head of the department, and uh, didn't hear anything for two or three weeks. And then he rang me up and he said, and I rang him up. And I said, you know, can you tell me what's going on? Uh, you know, is there any chance I might be starting in... He said, oh, didn't you get a letter from us? And I said, no. And he said, well, start tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. And uh, uh, they really, I mean, I, I did work as an assistant for a short while. I was thrown very much into the deep end quite quickly, probably too early, in fact, in retrospect, uh, without enough experience behind me. But but you, it was a very uphill uh you know, learning curve. You 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 had to learn fast, and because you were then taking responsibility for putting sets in the studio. Uh, and then I can't remember how how I first got involved in Doctor Who. I know that by the time the talents of Wang Chiang came along, I felt I'd done something like thirty thirty two episodes in something like two and a half years and I thought this you know I'm, I'm starting to get stale here I'm, because you know you, you start to then think of well I've done that before I've done that before well, that worked I can, maybe I could do it again and I didn't want to do that so uh, at the time Philip left I said to our allocating office you know, I'd like a break from this uh, but you before you went you designed and it's interesting you talk about getting stale because you did use something twice and yet it's one of the series icons now, is the seal of Rassilon, the, the Gallifreyan symbol that you first used in Revenge of the Cybermen as the Bogon symbol, yeah. and it became the, the symbol in The Deadly Assassin. And my friend Andrew O'Neill, who's a fine and uh, admired comedian, actually has it tattooed to his arm, so if you want to claim a royalty off him, I think you should be able to. Well, I must <laughs> tell you something about that, because one of the few uh, conferences I've been to was one in London, and this guy turned up with this with that symbol on a T-shirt with Doctor Who written underneath and the name of 
of the Revenge of the Sodom in Nabal. And I said, oh, that's nice. Where did that come from? He said, you designed it. And I said, ah, <laughs> oh, yes, I did. <laughs> so you'd forgotten all about I'd it. I'd forgotten all about it. You know, because you just, you, we, we, everything was done on the gallop. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, really was, everything was a, was a scramble. But when you look at it now, do you, I mean, you, a lot of people look back at Doctor and go, oh, I wasn't, you know, you, I mean, some of your stuff, that, like you mentioned the Planet of Evil set, I remember the first time I saw that, having read the book, and, and there's a sequence where a guy runs through it, and it's on film, and he runs through water, yeah. and water splashes about, and you go, oh, I'm not used to seeing that in Doctor Who. I mean, it's an incredible thing. Do you, are you proud of your work on it? Yes, I, I was, actually. I, I, I think that worked really well, but... We, Actually, yes, I, I was, but you didn't think about it sort of that way at the time. It did get, it did get a few accolades, um, but you, you finish one program and you were straight on to the next, and you didn't really have time to sort of sit back and think about it. Uh, and I suppose you, 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 looking back, you can remember the good things, but I do remember that we had so little money for the rest of the thing. That some of the sets uh, for the spaceship were decidedly cardboardy. Although you know, I always try to get people off the floor of the studios because that was a dead giveaway. All those painted floors that mm. we had in the television centre. So you know, I tried to put ladders in and get people up and different levels, which uh, did work. But we we just didn't have the money for the kind of detail. So you, a lot of it was sort of very plain flattage and. And it, so I think, oh, God, I wish we'd had a bit more. I wish I could have done this or that. And you tend to remember, or I do anyway, you tend to remember the things that you wish you'd done rather than the things that you, because that was okay. The, mm-hmm. the jungle worked fine. The planet surface worked fine. What was interesting with that was, of course, we had to have people coming out of the jungle and see the spaceship established in the jungle. And at that time, the difference between film and video was quite marked if you looked at the quality of the picture. Mm. And it always frustrated me that nobody had ever used that difference to, to a visual effect to say, okay, well, you know, the dream sequences are all going to be in film or because the video was that much crisper. So trying to get the, the quality of the lighting on this in the studio to the same as it was on film was quite difficult. You, 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 you were aware of the fact that there was a slight jump in quality when you came from the film sections into the video sections. Well, and when you, it's interesting how you approach science fiction in the sense that, yes, you had that spaceship which is sort of stark and futuristic, and yet when you go back to the Doctor's own planet and the Deadly Assassin, it, it, it takes its, it seems to take its um, influences from the past and its sort of the cloisters and, and, and um, you know, the panopticon. I mean, did that, did that come from the script? The that came, a lot of that came from the script and, we're, and talking about how we were going to deal with it. And uh, I think I can remember talking with Jim and with the, the director um, that we should treat them almost as an order. Uh, that it, you, you felt that they had been there for centuries in the way that you might within a cloister of a monastery or whatever uh, and so you get the hierarchy in the in the in the dress 
And I'm, I'm interested in your talking to people who've been there for ages. You, you, you know, you, you say you were sort of thrown in at the deep end with the BBC, but one always gets the impression with the BBC that you know you learn from the people around you and you were surrounded by very creative people. So I wondered who were some of the people that you encountered to who you would sort of ascribe certain credit to for the things that you learned or at least encouragement. Well, two of them actually sadly died quite young. One was a chap called Mel Cornish, uh, who was. Uh, was a terrific designer. He died of cancer. I think he was only about 33 or 34. And my original um, head of group, who was a chap called Leah Radford, who also died quite young. Um, and they, they, they did get you sort of thinking, maybe you know, it doesn't always have to be the same way it was. Uh, and then, because one of the advantages of working at the BBC at that time was, you know, one week you'd be doing Jack and Ori, then you'd be doing Current Affairs, then you'd be doing Light Entertainment, then you'd be doing a play. So it wasn't always the same formula, and sometimes you had to think of, of things in a completely different way. Um, and so you got to... It did, it did free up your mind. You had the choice. Actually, what was great about the BBC then was that you could experiment. If you, if you wanted to just do the job and, and, and t turn in the designs every day, you could do that. But if you actually wanted to really chance it and really try something new, you could do that as well. And if it all went horribly wrong, it didn't really <laughs> matter quite as much because... Uh, they would, you'd be on the next programme by then. <laughs> and there were things, you know, where, I mean, if you, the Planet of Evil, you know, we, we used virtually every stock column that they had in, in, in the stock scenery. And then we covered them with two-part foam. We put polythene around them and covered them two-part foam. And we put that form around them to make them look like weird trees and, and half of them, they couldn't get the stuff off. So, so the whole lot had to go in and skip. And I was not all that popular for a bit. But you're on, you're off. The, everybody loved the way it looked. And that, so to, to a degree, that had worked. Uh, and we had some, you know, you did have disasters. But it was, they weren't always your fault. Always. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was like... Um, well, the, the towns of Wen Chang. I mean, I, I, I told this story before, but we we had to build the sewers, and the at the time, what you did in the studio was apps. The, the the rules governing what you could do were rigorous. You know, you had firemen and safety experts, and you can't use plaster because it'll get into the wheels of the camera, and you can't do this, and you can't do that. And you can't fiberglass, you can't have fresh fiberglass there because of the fumes. And you can't, you know. And I said, well, look, I don't know what to do here because I've got a sewer and I can build it out of timber, but it's got to be sealed. Otherwise, we're going to have, you know, it's, we can't put the water in. Okay, so, well, okay, you can do fiber, you can fiberglass it, but it has to be done during a day with all the dock doors open and we have to have big fans in there so it keeps the air circulating, so it blows the fumes out. So they let me do that, 
and we fiberglassed the whole thing so it would contain water. And it was quite a long stretch. And then they started to fill it up. And one of the few occasions, because it was going to take several hours to fill this thing with water up to um, knee height, I went off to lunch. And I hadn't been sitting there long when, could Roger Mary Leach please come down to the studio? And the where the hose was attached to the water outlet on the wall had come away and the wall studio was half flooded and it, the water had gone down into the ducting all around the edge of the studio where all the cables ran and then down into PBX the floor below uh, and a lot of people tried to point the finger at me and say it was all your fault which it wasn't because it wasn't that it was just the fitting was just loose but I did have to hide for a day <laughs> Thanks to Roger, who's, of course, a fascinating fellow that he has given me enough material for two episodes, so he'll be back next week. His charity is Hope and Homes for Children, which is www.hopeandhomes.co.uk. Hope and Homes, all one word, all small case, .co.uk. Give if you can. Uh, in the meantime, uh, stay well. Uh, no point in having a trailer for who's on next week, because, as I say, it's more from Roger, so... Uh, Here's the closing music and a trailer for some Big Finish goodness. So I will use this time to plug my Twitter feed, which is at Toby Hado, which is at thing, T-O-B-Y-H-A-D-O-K-E. Big Finish also on Twitter at at Big Finish. So do all that sort of stuff in, you know, instead of reading the great works of literature. And together we can contribute to the cultural apocalypse that will destroy our civilization. <laughs> Goodbye. Imagine, if you will, your friend lies dying. His injuries are mortal. There is no rescue, no salvation, no hope, only death. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who. The Sixth Doctor. The Last Adventure. Constance Clark, how do you do? Name? Charlotte Pollard. Miss Philippa Jackson. <laughs> After you, Miss Bush. The Doctor saves the day again. <laughs> My name is Yardvale. Mr. Timothy Yardvale. Please open the door. It's a trick. He's lying. How do you know? No. What? No. No! Werewolves? Werewolves, surely. Well, have it your way. The point is, werewolves on wheels. Werewolves in uniform? Werewolves in hoods? Someone is sending a message. A very personal message to me. He's saving us. Come on, keep going. Who's saving us? Where are we going? Come in, please. Oh, he's just taken a lump out of one of... Ah! Doctor, for goodness sake, just... Well, Doctor, you've only got three minutes left now. Three minutes? minutes to save my life. The Valiard is a distillation of all my negative impulses. The simple fact is that I'm a time lord who's out of time. Big Finish. 
We love stories.